Amelena Salinas, software engineer and host of the Women in Tech show, technical interviews with prominent women in tech. What is a distributed system? Why is it important to know how distributed systems work? You may be using a distributed system without knowing it. Natalia Denisenkwa, independent solutions architect, answers these questions. We begin by talking about distributed system tools, data modeling, and then focus on the core components of distributed systems. There are many tools that have abstracted how distributed systems work, and Natalia explained the benefits of knowing how these work. These tools give us the power to build distributed systems easily, but when working on this, knowing what happens under the hood is extremely beneficial. If you have any feedback on the show, please write a review on iTunes, send me a tweet at Tech Woman Show or a private message. I really enjoy hearing from the listeners of the show. Thank you. Natalia is an independent solutions architect focusing on data modeling, distributed operations, data pipelines, and big data systems. Natalia, welcome to the Women in Tech show. Thank you. Your work spans from solutions architect on data modeling and distributed operations. This May, I saw your going to give a talk at OSCON in Austin about intuitive distributed systems algorithms with F-sharp. What is a distributed system? Distributed system is a broad term. And from an abstract point of view, any system that consists of more than one machine that communicate with each other can be called a distributed system. But Simply speaking, a distributed system is a set of nodes that can talk with each other by passing messages to achieve some common goal. And you may be using a distributed system without even knowing it. There are lots of examples of them, like starting from distributed databases to peer-to-peer applications like BitTorrent or even the Internet. Also, Units in distributed systems are autonomous, so each of them usually has its own operational and disk memory. So in a single server system, if some server fails, it can't process requests anymore. But in distributed systems, nodes can fail at any time, and the goal here is usually to tolerate errors and try to keep system working. So Failures can be detected and recovered from. And ideally, client can spot the difference between communicating with a cluster or a single server. So for the client, cluster should appear as a single unit. Mm -hmm. So Hadoop, Spark, Kafka, Zookeeper, and Cassandra are the examples of distributed systems that are used in real life. What are these tools that you just mentioned, Hadoop, Spark, and Cassandra? Hadoop is a framework that allows distributed processing of large data sets across clusters computers using simple programming models. And it consists of HDFS, 
what stands for Hadoop Distributed File System, Yarn Resource Manager, and MapReduce Framework. And this all usually runs on a commodity clusters. Besides that, Hadoop also has a very large ecosystem around it. And are these tools sort of wrapping what a distributed system does? Yes. You mentioned Hadoop ecosystem. What do you mean by the ecosystem? Hadoop ecosystem consists of many different tools for different purposes, like HBase, TAS, uh, Zookeeper, Peak, Hive, Uzi, and many more. Like, HDFS doesn't allow random access to its data, which means you can't effectively search and change it. But when application needs random access, I often use HBase, which is a distributed storage based on HDFS that is also suitable for near real-time querying. And I also use Cassandra for that purpose too, because it gives you different guarantees. Mm -hmm. And another useful tool is Apache TAS, because MapReduce writes intermediate results to disk-stable storage, but you can submit the same MapReduce job to Apache TAS executor, and it may run the same job much faster, because it stores all of the results in memory and builds execution direct acyclic graph of jobs, like in Spark. And also, writing MapReduce jobs takes a lot of time. And you've been mentioning MapReduce several times. How would you define at a higher level what MapReduce is? Hadoop MapReduce is a software framework that runs on top of Yarn Resource Manager. I can talk about it too. And it is used to write data processing applications. So the idea here is that we have map and reduce functions. And map takes data set and transforms it so that individual elements are broken down into tuples. Mm -hmm. While reduce task takes the output from a map as an input and combines those data tuples into smaller set of tuples and returns to a client. Mm -hmm. And yeah, it writes intermediate results to disk, so tests will be more efficient. And also, I talked about Yarn, I mentioned it. Mm -hmm. Yarn is a tool that helps us use operational memory of the cluster. So it's like a resource manager and job schedule monitoring system. So the idea here is to have a global master and per application allocated masters. So an application is either a single job or like DAG execution of jobs. Global master arbitrates resources among all of the applications in the system. And every node has an agent who is responsible for allocating containers, monitoring their resource usage like CPU, memory, disk, network, and reporting this information to Global Master. Mm -hmm. And Application Master is, in effect, a framework-specific library that is tasked with negotiating resources from the Global Master and working with node agents to execute and monitor the tasks. There are also other cluster resource managers like 
Apache Mesos. So within resource managers, it is very easy to run applications on the cluster. And you've been mentioning managing resources and memory. Yeah. How is data stored in Hadoop? So it is stored by HDFS. Okay. And simply speaking, HDFS is used to manage stable storage of nodes in the cluster. And its main purpose is for storing large amounts of data and batch processing, which means analyzing big chunks of data at once. So HDFS application needs write once, read many access model for the files. And one of the advantages of such approach is that same data can be used by many different Hadoop ecosystem tools or used many times. And the way HDFS stores files are, they are split into smaller units called blocks, which are stored on set of data nodes. And single node performs a role of a master and it contains file system metadata. It's also responsible for file system namespace operations. It regulates access to the files and manages which blocks allocated at which nodes and where are blocks replicated. Mm -hmm. So replication in turn is used for availability and fault tolerance. So HDFS is fault tolerant and scalable data store. Actually, I use it a lot for storing big data. We've been talking about HDFS, which is the Hadoop distributed file system. Yeah. Is Hadoop mainly used for storing data and doing some processing to that data with MapReduce? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Let's talk about a little more on how to use Hadoop, the process for using the system. Is this via scripts or how do you use Hadoop? You write MapReduce job for that and you submit this job to Yarn resource manager and like this MapReduce framework operates the data that is stored in HDFS. For those people that don't know what a job is, what does a job mean? So job means like some Java code that you submit to this framework. Which are the set of tasks that you want to do to the data, right? Yeah, yeah. So we've been talking about Hadoop, mm -hmm. this framework for distributed file system. Are there any other tools that you use in your work with data operations and big data systems? Yeah, so Hadoop HDFS, Yarn, and MapReduce or TES are used for storing large amounts of data and analyzing it in batch, non-real-time manner. So I use these tools to build system for big data storage and running MapReduce and Hive analytics on less big load hours. And it all was orchestrated by Uzi. And sometimes there is need for near real-time or streaming analysis or like machine learning mechanisms that Spark is a good choice for that. So Spark, if I'm understanding correctly, would be something on top of Hadoop, which Hadoop is focused more on the storage and doing operations on data, and Spark is more about streaming data? So Spark can run on top of Yarn or Mesos resource managers, but it can be standalone too. 
like without Hadoop at all. Mm -hmm. And in simple terms, Spark is another open source framework for big data processing, which has models for SQL-like languages querying, machine learning, graph, stream processing, and it's written in Scala, so Scala and Java are the main languages that are used to work with it, but it also supports R and Python. And Spark processes and stores intermediate results in memory, like TAS, so it, it's more efficient than MapReduce. And if, for example, some node was doing some part fails or loses data, then this step will be recomputed. And recomputing the data is often less expensive than storing intermediate data in stable storage. So is Spark functioning and working with real-time data processing? As we receive data, for example, from Internet of Things sensors, does it function? Yes. So besides regular non-real-time, Spark also provides Spark streaming, which is a model that allows us use Spark engine for stream operation. So it divides incoming data into chunks and passes to Spark engine. And you can use Spark streaming when there's a stream, like some data that appears constantly. From my experience, it may be data that is generated by users, like user clicks in the web store, like, you know, and you need to analyze this data constantly in near real time. Mm -hmm. Spark also has Spark MLLib module, which is a machine learning library. And it has common learning algorithms such as classification, regression, clustering, and collaborative filtering. And it helps you analyze the data. There is also a graph solution, Spark Graphics. Here you can view the same data as both graphs and collections, transform and join graphs with RDDs. And in my own experience, I was convinced that for some data with really complex relationships where you can benefit from the structure, it really gives you better performance. Mm -hmm. And personally, I often use Spark Engine for analysis of large amounts of data and it's very nice that Spark framework provides different tools for different uses like Spark streaming which I used often when dealing with Kafka queues. And under the hood these tools are using distributed algorithms, correct? Yes. So I want to talk more about part of the focus of the talk you were giving at OSCON which is in intuitive distributed algorithms. And with the tools that we've been talking about, they abstract these algorithms. And a lot of the time, you don't know exactly what's happening under the hood. You just get something that works with big data and with many clusters. Mm -hmm. Why is it important to understand how distributed systems work? Of course you can successfully use distributed system without even thinking about algorithms under the hood, after some point. So you will be working with a system as a black box, and in case of some problems or unexpected behavior, 
You will try to solve this by setting it up in arbitrary way to test it, if it's going to work, or you just read somewhere after googling that setting some parameter to bigger value might help. So, without proper understanding of what you're doing, you may get lost instead of solving current problem. And it may even turn out that system was behaving as expected. You were just making wrong assumptions about how you expect it to work. Also, you need to understand what's going on under the hood to know what guarantees tools that you are using provide. Another very common case is performance tuning, which is usually not an easy task because you need to understand exactly what's going on to try to fix something. And again, you may try to do blind guesses and test it, but most likely you will still need lots of time to figure out system operations and where is the problem. So it doesn't mean that knowing distributed algorithms will automatically solve all of your problems, but if you know what's inside of your system, you will at least spend a lot less time in figuring things out. Mm -hmm. Also, sometimes we need to choose between several distributed system tools and every company of course will tell that their product is the best but you need to understand for which system it suits better and if it suits for yours and what are some of the main components that we should know about of a distributed system so we can talk about components of distributed system from an academic as well as practical perspective and in academic sense, we have an initial state, event that can change system states, executions, and so on. But from the practical point of view, we can distinguish two types of components, lower-level and higher-level components. Lower-level components are nodes, memory and disk space, network communication model, cluster topology, data centers, and so on. And more higher level components would be components of operation and processes, each of which usually has its own responsibility, like data node agents that are responsible for data block storage in HDFS, failure detection models that track stage of current node and collect and disseminate information about the rest of the cluster and so on. So what you mentioned is these two divisions of thinking about the components, the academic and the practical. If I'm not coming from an academic background, I didn't do graduate school in distributed systems or anything, do I need to know about the academic side of things to be able to troubleshoot a distributed system? Well, you at least would need to understand how it's working. Like, for example, if you know distributed algorithms, it's totally fine. And if you know the system itself, it's fine too. And I think this is very similar to what's happening in machine learning and deep learning. We're seeing these tools that out of the box, you can create models. But it's always important to know a little bit more of how the algorithms work and some of the components that make it work in order to, like you said, optimize, know where and what to optimize. 
Yeah, exactly. You you need to know which one is better for your situation. Exactly, because you could just be trying SVM and in reality you don't need that. Mm-hmm. What have distributed systems enabled us to do? So actually a lot of things. A single server can only handle amounts of data under its operational and storing limits. So it has low disk space to fit large amounts of data and it has low RAM and CPU power to process it. And of course you could have a single machine, like a supercomputer, with tons of disk and operational memory. However, this will really cost you a lot. It will be able to store and process big data, but data volumes grow quickly. And for example, after several months, and sometimes even days, this storage will be full and you will need a newer, better and also more expensive one. So distributed systems are usually run on commodity hardware. You will have number of inexpensive nodes in a cluster rather than one supercomputer that can cost up to millions of dollars. Mm -hmm. Also, scalability is a huge advantage of a distributed system. If you notice that your system has a lack of resources, just add new nodes in the cluster. This is also cheaper because of the possibility of unexpected change in demand. Like, in my experience, common cases are things like Christmas sale in web store or Black Friday with huge number of clients. And it is much better to have the ability to add or remove servers than constantly replacing machines with bigger ones. And there can be other unpredicted changes. For example, if your product is featured on the news or something, you have to be prepared. Yeah, like when millions of users access your website. Yes. And earlier we talked about the components of a distributed system, the academic and the practical. What are the core algorithms of a distributed system that you would like people building distributed systems to know about? In distributed systems, the core part is communication between nodes in a cluster. And here there are different algorithms. Raw communication algorithms, gossip, reliable broadcast, and so on. And consensus algorithms are used to solve some problems as literal action, enforcing consistency, deciding to commit to abort distributed transactions, and to solve data conflicts, clocks mechanisms are used. And there are also several types of failure detectors to detect failed nodes. And to effectively search, there are Bloom filters and distributed indexes. And to recover from failures or determine deadlock, snapshot algorithms exist. And many more, actually. So for some of these that you mentioned that are consensus, detecting failures, communicating between nodes, can you give some examples of the usage? For example, in consensus, what is trying to happen? Enforcing consistency of what? Consensus is an algorithm of getting all nodes to agree on some specific value based on the votes of each node. 
and it is useful for synchronizing replicated state of machines and making sure all replicas have the same consistent view of system state. For somebody that's not familiar with nodes and setting values would be, I would say, somebody's using Facebook or social media and several people are clicking like on a post. Would this be an example that two people are accessing the same function and updating the same value? Better example would be like in Wikipedia, when several people try to change the content at the same time. Okay. Like, you know, when someone tries to, for example, add that season of Game of Thrones season seven just came out and one person changes it and saves it and the other person changes and saves it. And this situation needs to be resolved for a cluster. Mm-hmm. All nodes should have consistent, like the same system state. So that some data isn't lost, like what, why did my update get lost or things like that? Like decide which update would be applied, for example. Decide which update would be applied. But also if, if I updated like five seconds before or some decent amount of time and difference, it should make sure that everybody's updating the latest or something. Yeah, exactly. And what about failure detectors? What are some examples of a failure that would need to be detected? And why would it be challenging to detect a failure? So in distributed system, cluster membership is an important process. Like when all nodes know about failed nodes. For efficient processing, cluster needs to be aware of failures because then client won't be directed to the node that is down and wait for the reply forever. Also, failure detection mechanism is the main part of successfully accomplishing important operations like agreement, literal action, reliable broadcast, and there are several failure detector algorithms with different completeness, which means does failure detector detects all failed nodes and with different accuracy, how often it detects correct processes as failed. So failure detectors presented in most of the distributed systems. And with these algorithms or options, for example, the failure detectors be an option that you can choose from, for example, in an out-of-the-box system like the ones we've been talking about? So sometimes you can, for example, like with gossip. Mm-hmm. Gossip is a protocol for exchanging data between nodes in epidemic way, like a virus. Yes. So sometimes you can choose to disable some mechanisms that are on top of it, or like in Cassandra, you have a tunable consistency, which means you can select between eventual and strong consistency. Which is why it's important to have some notion of these core algorithms because you might be applying some of these and like you said, for your particular application, you're probably doing unnecessary processing or yeah, not the most efficient way of sending data. Also with like Bloom filters, you can set it up, but it would be wrong. Why could it be wrong, for example? For example, with Bloom filters or... I can also show you an example about 
choosing between two distributed systems, like for example HBase and Cassandra. You read about different ones when you need a distributed database, and you think that both are good, but you read, for example, that strong consistency, and you read, for example, that HBase has a strong consistency. And you think it's a nice thing, because it sounds good, right? Yeah. But after some time using it, you understand that you need fast response from the read queries, which HBase doesn't give you. And you read more about consistency, and then you understand that you don't really need queries to return so consistent result all the time. So you understand that Cassandra would be better for you, because it offers tunable consistency and it's suitable for your application availability. And also some of the bad decisions or good decisions that you can make, depending on if you know more about the algorithms and how these systems are structured, is, can be associated to the cost of running a distributed system. Like, for example, you might be overpaying for something you don't need. Yeah, sometimes you may be overpaying. Let's talk now about data modeling, since this is an area that you've also worked on. What does data modeling refer to? Simply speaking, data modeling is a process that helps an architect to design and build a database, starting from gathering requirements to a system that's ready. And one of the main things I do is database design. Most of the time, clients don't know exactly what they want, so I talk to them a lot to build a data model suitable for their requirements. And I gather requirements during meetings with customers, and I also understand their business processes and distinguish main entities that they have from these business processes mm -hmm. and relationships between those entities. So. When I know this list of entities... What do you mean an entity? So entity is like uh, some real-world object, like users, products, sales, and so on. So when you have it and relationships between them, uh, this is called conceptual data model. And when conceptual data model is built, then you make it richer. You add attributes like, for example, User can have name, address, card number. So this is called logical data model. Mm -hmm. And during this logical data model building, you usually build UML diagram. It is, simply speaking, UML is modeling language with special schemas for different types of objects. Mm -hmm. And in logical modeling phase, we still don't assume anything about how data is going to be implemented in practice. Like, we don't know which database we will use. So, the last phase is building physical data model, when we know in which databases it's going to be implemented. And based on that, you determine columns, data types for each column, like constraints, and so on. So, with the same logical data model, Physical may be different for different databases. And you've mentioned several things, for example, the entity, which translates to a real-world thing, like a user and uh, account, for example, or mm -hmm. 
and the relations between the entities, which can be restrictions like a user, how many accounts can a user have? Relations like user can buy product and like users can also give likes to products, uh, comments and so on. Are there alternatives to a model where not all of these relations and entities have to be thought of at the very beginning and defined? So relational databases where we have like tables and relationships between them have highly structured data. And the main difference between relational databases and no-skill databases, which is an alternative, it is the way they store data. Mm-hmm. No-skill databases usually have flexible schema or even no schema at all, which makes it perfect for storing unstructured or semi-structured data. It's like unstructured data can be any raw text, like a tweet feeds or anything, even images. It doesn't, it doesn't have to be text. Semi-structured data is like the data that has some structure, kind of, like JSON and XML are examples of semi-structured data. Mm-hmm. Like data from devices and sensors can be semi-structured. And we have different types of no-scale databases. We have key-value, document-oriented, column-wise, and more. And all of them used for different purposes. So I implemented custom caching solutions for the system using Redis key value, known skill storage. And it was very efficient because it stores data in memory. What are the things you start thinking about before deciding to choose if you want to use a structure, a semi-structure, or a completely flexible schema? Like what would be some of the things that you keep in mind when starting to decide? If you have structured data, which can fit in relational database, and you need strong transactional guarantees, like ACID, then you should probably use relational one, if you, of course, don't expect the extreme growth of your data. Mm-hmm. And if data volume is high, data is unstructured or semi-structured, you would need no SQL database because no scale databases are horizontally scalable, which allows to distribute it and it is available usually without single point of failure and no scale databases cost less. So it all depends on type of data that you use and which guarantees are required for the system. So just to begin to close You've been working as an architect in technology. What has that trajectory been like? As a technical architect, I see my responsibilities in designing a single technological concept for each project, like based on reliability, safety, cost reducing, simplicity of support of this approach, and so on. And there are engineers who follow different approaches. Someone loves everything new, and someone, on contrary, prefers old proven technologies. And someone loves experiments, and someone do not. And my task is 
after all, to provide such architecture, to choose the right technologies that solve the task without sacrificing stability, performance, and security. And I'm not the manager of the team, so often developers have very high qualification in some narrow areas, and I always listen to them and thank them for their help. Mm -hmm. But it is important to see the whole picture of solution development, like understand the importance of implementation of the entire project. And as an architect, besides system designing and engineering, I also help in architecture a productive result for each engineer and the company as a whole. What are other skills that you consider important to become an excellent architect? So you need to dig in the current projects, listen to engineers and customers. And besides excellent technical skills that are absolutely required, you also need to be a good leader to successfully implement projects together with the team. Like, there is no universal recipe for successful leadership. There are project management systems with building cost control systems, various metrics, and so on. However, these all are just convenient tools that do not guarantee success by themselves. And in my opinion, there are two qualities without which it is impossible to effectively lead the team. The first is to have high professional competence of the team leader. And the second is to respect every software engineer in the team. Mm -hmm. So I cope with this work quite successfully. And I withstand the competition with man architects. And I'm engaged in serious, hard projects that are difficult to implement. I work on productivity and efficiency optimization of the system. And I enjoy my job and I'm very happy. But at the same time, I also think a lot about my nearest future. Mm -hmm. I want to continue to technically develop myself and enhance my skills. So I would like to try to work for large and top-level company like Google, Microsoft, Facebook, Amazon, or similar. Yeah. <laughs> Not right now, but maybe in a year. Because the challenges those big companies face in terms of data are... Yeah, exactly. And I want to continue my scientific research, speaking conferences, and give interesting talks. Natalia, thank you for taking the time to come on the show. Thank you. Thank you.